0: Slavery forms the backdrop to a number of Wilbur Smith's novels, and from time to time over the next few weeks, Tom and I are going to be looking at different aspects of this grim but profoundly important topic with a variety of guests. But as odd as it may sound, we're beginning today at the end with the abolition of slavery, and we're thrilled to be getting the expert help of journalist and historian Adam Hochschild of Berkeley University, California. Hello, I'm Diana Thomas. And I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show.
1: A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. When people dream of riches, their imaginations follow the shape of the economy. As the 20th century ended, for instance, dot com billionaires inspired envy, for it was in their private jets that waited on the tarmac at Aspen and Sun Valley. In late 19th century America, railroads seemed the quickest path to wealth, for it was their robber baron owners whose luxurious private cars sat on sidings at resorts like Newport. In the England of the 18th century, the luxury vehicles were the carriages of Caribbean sugar planters and the imagined road to riches led through the cane fields of the New World. The Atlantic slave trade had first touched Britain back in 1555, when the mariner John Locke had sailed back from West Africa carrying certain black slaves, whereof some were tall and strong men. Two centuries later, British ships dominated the insatiable market for slaves in the Americas, supplying African captives to French, Spanish, Dutch and Portuguese colonies, as well as to Britain's own. In peak years, they carried some 40,000 men, women, and child slaves across the Atlantic, as many as those carried by the slave ships of all other countries combined. What a glorious and advantageous trade this is, wrote one man who worked for a firm of slave merchants. It is the hinge on which all the trade of this globe moves. Another trader believed the transport of slaves was the foundation of our commerce, the support of our colonies, the life of our navigation, and first cause of our national industry and riches. The thought that anyone might ever want to ban this lucrative business was inconceivable.
0: Those words are taken from Bury the Chains, a remarkable book by Adam Hochschild, um, a journalist, historian, lecturer at Berkeley University in California, and a sort of Meryl Streep insofar as pretty well everything he does either wins an award or is nominated for an award, as indeed Bury the Chains has been. And we are delighted that Adam is with us today. So hi, Adam. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show.
2: Thank you, Diana. And Tom.
0: I guess the, the first question that um, arises is, is that, I mean, Bury the Chains is a book about the abolition of slavery. And I was curious as to what made you focus on that particular angle of the story, um, the abolition rather than, as it were, the existence, the awfulness, what-have-you, but the abolition?
2: Well, you know, books are, are born in strange ways, and for me, often the book that I think I'm going to write, it turns out not to be the book I write, and yes. I write something else. Uh, I originally got interested in the figure of John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace and many other beloved oh. hymns that are still sung today, a uh, evangelical preacher, enormously po- popular in his day in Britain. Uh, and I was fascinated that uh, to learn that he had spent his early days as a slave trader, captaining yeah. a slave ship, four transatlantic slaving voyages, three of them as captain. And I assumed, as do many people who hear about John Newton for the first time, that he must have been disillusioned and horrified by his time in the slave trade. And that's what transformed him into the person who wrote all those beautiful hymns as some sort of atonement for those early days. So I thought I would do a biography of him. And then I discovered, as does anybody who looks into his life at much detail, that no, he had his conversion to evangelical Christianity before he entered the slave trade. And he left that line of work Uh, Solely for for medical reasons, he had what they called in those days apoplexy uh, and uh, didn't want to get an attack when he was at sea. So he moved on to shore, became Britain's most famous evangelical preacher, never said a word about slavery for the next 30 years until one day uh, a man named Clarkson came to see him and said, There's a movement afoot. Reverend Newton, you really have to say something. People know you are in this trade. So then I wondered, who is this man Clarkson? And maybe he and the movement are the story. Right. And indeed, they were.
0: I mean, one of the things that's fascinating and horrifying about slavery is that it was conducted by people who sincerely believed in Christianity. And this is true, obviously, of the founding fathers in the United States as well, who absolutely believed. Um, in the equality of human beings in the sight of God, and yet somehow the fact that they had written off a gigantic proportion of the human race didn't seem to bother them. Do you have to know why that was, how they were able to reconcile those two things?
2: I think it was because they didn't think of Africans as human beings. That's the only way you could really reconcile it logically. Uh, Of course, they looked like us. The bodies were similar and so on. But they were different creatures in some form. And so they weren't entitled to all of these rights, which were, of course, you know, the 18th century was a time of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the growing conception of uh, uh, human rights and the right to self-government everywhere. But it didn't really extend to Uh, African slaves. So I was interested in how uh, how that change came about. And what really excited me in writing this book is realizing that the popular movement in Britain, which helped to bring about first the banning of the slave trade, and then the banning of slavery itself, Which you accomplished in Britain, you know, a good quarter century before we accomplished it here in the United States. And it took a very brutal civil war to do it here. Uh, That was an extraordinary popular movement, which developed all of the tools that popular movements use today. And it was a movement that involved the extension of empathy that made people think well, you know, Africans are human beings after all. And I'm fascinated with times and places when human beings manage to extend their sense of empathy, because I think that's what we have to do if we're going to cooperate in solving sure. the severe problems that face the world today. Yeah, sure. and it's
1: interesting, the, the modern the modernity of it, because certainly reading your book, the whole... You know, it could be written from today's headlines in as much as you talk about how the anti-slavery campaign has invent so many of the tools that we associate from the the kind of iconic merchandise through the newsletters, through the pressure groups. Um, and and then the slave interests come back with their kind of PR men uh, and their advertising campaigns uh, and their their lobby groups. Um, it all, Rings very true, and and you, in that opening quote I read, you, you talk about sugar as kind of the oil industry of the eighteenth century in some way, certainly in terms of the money, um, but that, that's involved in it. Um, and of course, slavery is part of um, a great uh, international, al- almost global trading pattern um, that, that exists at that time, and, and makes a lot of people very rich. Um, and I, when you were Diana, when Diana was asking about what, how did people? justify it, I, I just thought of that quote that, uh, you know, it's very hard to get a man to believe something if his paycheck depends on him believing the opposite. Um, and the, I think the money um, involved is is vast. So, I mean, one of the things we wanted to, I think, look at is that whole kind of transatlantic, but also, also um, really globe-spanning network. Um, Because one of the uh, most shocking things I think to modern audiences about slavery is the way in which um, the black African leaders enabled it and participated in it as the, the people who were often supplying the slaves in the first place.
2: Yes, everybody, you know, people at many levels were complicit in this trade because the American, British, French, Dutch sea captains who sailed up and down the west coast of Africa could easily find slaves to buy because African slave traders had captured these people in the interior of the continent and marched them to the coast and uh, had them ready for sale. Uh, Many African societies practiced their own version of slavery. In some ways, it was not as brutal as slavery in the Americas, slaves were sort of a prestige item for a king uh, or big chief to have. Uh, sometimes it was very brutal that the, the slaves could be sacrificed as part of a religious ritual, or sometimes the ceremony sacralizing a treaty uh, made between uh, different tribes or ethnic groups where a slave would be have his bones broken and be left to die as a sort of symbolic sign of what would happen to somebody who violated this treaty. Uh, In other ways, it was uh, less harsh than slavery in the new world and it often was not an inherited status. It's hard to make too many generations about, too many generalizations about African slavery because it varied a great deal from one part of the continent to another. And there were some places where it was not practiced. And uh, when Uh, European sea captains sailed along the uh, southeastern coast of what today is South Africa, for example, uh, you find them complaining that nobody is selling us slaves here. So it varied a great deal. But the fact that it did exist in some form in Africa, as it did in indigenous societies in many parts of the world, made it easier for the European and American slave traders who had the advanced technology of the day, namely ocean-going slave ships and, you know, rifles uh, and other weapons made it easier for them to buy. I mean,
0: the first European um, interactions in the slave trade were obviously on the east, co- east coast of Africa, wasn't it? it was the, port- the Portuguese going up into the eastern coast of what, I suppose now Tanzania and that part of the world. But if we look at the West African trade, what is the process by which, from the African point of view, something which had been, as you say, in different formats, forms? I mean, Timbuktu was a slave city, for example, in the Middle Ages. It was, a, it was a, Slaves was, were brought up from, from, from West Africa to Timbuktu, and Timbuktu became an incredibly wealthy city, one of the greatest cities on earth at the time. And then those slaves were shipped across the Sahara to Arabia and North Africa. Um, but in terms of the sort of effect in the what 17th, 18th, and 19th century, what what was the, what was the process like in terms of the way it affected African cultures? I mean, in, t- in the sense that suddenly they had this entirely new form of economy and this new resource.
2: Well, remember that up until the Scramble for Africa in the latter part of the 19th century, which started in a big way around 1870 or so, or so of sub-Saharan Africa was under indigenous rulers, kings, chiefs, uh, smaller entities and whatnot. And their contact with the slave trade was, you know, gangs of of traders would come into various areas in the interior, kidnap people, and then force march them to the coast uh, to be sold to the slave traders who came down the west coast of Africa. From the east coast of Africa, yes, there were some Portuguese, whom you mentioned, who sailed around the bottom of the continent as far as Mozambique and took slaves from there. Right. But from the east coast of the of Africa, most of the trade was to the Arab and Islamic world right. uh, by people who came from there, bought slaves. So Africa was supplying slaves in both directions to other continents.
0: It became an incredibly important and transformative source of wealth for the leaders of Dahomey and other other kind of African kingdoms. And and they were sort of were getting all sorts of things from the West, including, say, guns. So that the nature of warfare in Africa was utterly transformed. I mean, it was having a massive, I suppose you could say, corrupting and and destabilizing effect upon the actual s- states who were supplying the people to to be taken taken elsewhere by Western European slavers.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right to point to the guns, because I think it was the introduction of guns into Africa by this trade that was one of the most noxious uh,
0: parts of it. And what was yeah. in, in what respect? I mean, what 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 were the guns used for?
2: Well, they were used, uh, you know, the power of the weapon to round up slaves, which could then be, uh, you know, chained chains were also a powerful uh, instrument. You know, if you're going to march, you know, 40 people from somewhere 700 miles in the interior to the coast in order to sell them to a British or Dutch sea captain, you want to be sure they don't run away. So you need chains. So this was another powerful instrument. Uh, Something we don't know and can only guess at is the enormous death toll that must have happened on these marches, because some of them were indeed several hundred miles long. Nobody was keeping any statistics of this. Uh, Some estimates are that maybe half of the people being marched in chains to the coast died on the way. We actually do know a great deal about the death toll on the Middle Passage, as it was called, across the Atlantic because slaves were valuable cargo and the shipping companies involved uh, kept uh, very careful records as to how many were loaded on and what port and then what port they were offloaded at, how much they were sold for, how many died across on, on the way. And there's actually a a fascinating database, the Transatlantic uh, Slavery Database, which you can find online, accessible to scholars, where when I last looked at it, which was some time ago, uh, and the statistics may have increased, they estimated that there were 35,000 transatlantic slaving voyages altogether, British, French, American, Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish. Uh, and so on and that they have data from 28,000 of them
0: oh, they my goodness. have found
2: additional data by now and that's 80% from these statistics they know you know what percentage of slaves were likely to die on the voyage it was above 10% uh, what ports they were delivered to where they came from and so on
0: wow oh, my goodness. that's
1: them. fascinating uh, the business like precision of it is chilling um and when you're talking about the, the, the way in which the, the, the commercial aspects of it required such precise um, record keeping, I was, I was thinking of the Zong case, which is obviously a famous instance where the absolutely cold-eyed, no question of morality pursuit of, of view of, the, of slaves as just a cargo like any other comes to the fore. And I was wondering if you could um, just sort of describe that to our listeners.
2: Yeah, this was a case of a a British slave ship, the Zong, that was carrying slaves from Africa to Jamaica. And uh, navigation was a very tricky thing in those days. People had not yet figured out how to tell what longitude you were at, latitude you could tell. And people frequently, you know, captains making these voyages, overshot or undershot uh, their destination. And the captain of this voyage... Carrying slave to Jamaica, overshot. I believe his, if I remember correctly, his destination. Mm. Uh, some slaves started to die, and he threw a number of slaves overboard in order to make the claim, make an insurance claim that they had died in the course of the journey, because you know this was valuable cargo and it was insured. Uh, this was a big business Uh, then uh, it somehow came out a member of the crew came out that in fact uh, they had not died of natural causes i.e starvation or running out of water uh, on the journey but rather he'd thrown them overboard Uh, and the insurance company contested the claim and it became uh, a trial in London and it caught the eye of several people who later became uh, extremely active in this remarkable British anti-slavery movement.
0: Can I just check? He was not tried for murder. He was tried for insurance fraud. Is that is that what we're saying?
2: Yes, yes, it's, yes.
0: So the fact that these people had died was not a crime in itself. It was the fact that they were people who were insured who had died and therefore the insurers would do that.
2: Right, it was an insurance fraud case. Nowhere in this world at that time would a white person be tried for the murder of a black person. It just didn't happen. Slave ships on plantations or whatever.
0: But it also goes to the point that was in the very beginning, the bit bit that um, that Tom read out, in that what you're seeing is, for example, the insurance business in London, which becomes huge. It becomes Lloyd's, becomes the kind of center of global shipping insurance. That, that here we see the insurance business developing. What, what, was, what was the date of the Jean case? What was that, roughly?
1: I think it's about oh, 1783, gosh, it was... is it? Something
0: like so that. So late, late 18th century. Um, but but the, the, the key thing is that this illustrates the degree to which economic development in the West was tied, to all sorts of s- s- subsidiary things, so linked directly to slavery, were being created in part because of the need that the slavery business created.
2: Yes. In a way, the whole birth of the international banking and credit system came out of the slave trade. Because starting in the uh, 1600s, you had this very active, what they called the, the triangle trade, which was ships going from Britain and other European countries down the west coast of Africa, carrying trading goods of all kinds, you know, muskets, rifles, chains, uh, jewelry, knives, cutlasses, and so forth, which could be traded with the African slave traders for slaves. Then they would carry the slaves across uh, the ocean to the sugar sugar plantations of the Caribbean, the cotton plantations of the American South, the coffee plantations in Brazil. And then they would load up with these cargoes of sugar, coffee, uh, uh, cotton, other goods, and take them to Europe. So that was the triangle. Well, that involved transporting financially valuable cargoes. And remember, that's what the slaves were considered yeah. over long distances between continents uh, and you needed a reliable system of banking and credit uh, to make this work so sure. that in many ways the whole international financial system that allows you know a bank or a merchant on one company uh, on one continent to make a deal with a bank or a merchant on another continent, Came out of this traffic in human beings.
0: So, what, when you started work on this book, emotionally, and and kind of how 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 hard were you hit by some of the things that you found out?
2: Well, it it certainly astonished and horrified me. Uh, I think one of the things I learned was that although I already knew something about slavery in the American South, because, you know, it's my country. I'd actually worked in the South briefly as a civil rights worker in the 1960s. Oh, wow. Um, I learned that uh, Caribbean slavery was much harsher for two reasons, I think. One was the climate. Uh, No rest in the winter, you know, uh, you're... In a tropical climate, you're planting, harvesting, cultivating crops uh, year-round. Plus, the uh, fertile land was more scarce, and it was saved for those crops of primarily sugar, but also coffee and indigo and other things. And the plots of lands on which the slaves were allowed to grow their own vegetable was, you know, stony, rocky, miserable soil. The other reason I think things were more brutal in the Caribbean uh, is that on every island, slaves outnumbered white people by enormous amounts. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it was like 10 to one in Jamaica, some of the smaller islands, it was 20 to one. Um, it was always at least five to one. And I think in that kind of atmosphere, the, White people were always afraid that rebellions would break out. And indeed, many more rebellions did break out there yeah. than broke out in the American South. Uh, and these were always ruthlessly put down. But I must say that horrible as it was to learn about this, at the same time, I have to say the experience of writing this book was exhilarating in learning about this remarkable group. Of uh, British men yeah. and women who created this extraordinary movement and devised so many techniques we use today. You know, the very idea of a national organization uh, with a headquarters in a country's capital, with branches in towns and cities all over the country, there had never been anything quite like this in huh. Britain before. The idea of people from in a very re- deeply religious age of people from several different religious sects, primarily Quakers and Anglicans, and later on some Baptists and Methodists, coming together to work for a secular aim. Again, almost unheard of. The techniques they devised, the, the they created the first logo for a political organization <laughs> that I know of anywhere. Uh, the image of a kneeling slave in chains, surrounded by the legend, am I not a man and a brother? When women got active uh, a couple of decades later, theirs was a woman slave in chains surrounded by the legend, Am I Not a Woman and a Sister? They created the world's first political poster. And, you know, you've all seen it, that image of the sort of top-down diagram of a slave ship with their bodies just lined up in rows like sardines. That Hmm. was done by a local anti-slavery committee uh, in Portsmouth. And as soon as the uh, committee in London saw this, they thought, wow, that's a powerful piece. Uh, They ran off 8,000 copies. They sent a batch to their uh, friend and ally, uh, Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia, to another friend, the Marquis de Lafayette uh, in Paris. uh, And they put them up in pubs all over England. So it was just exhilarating to learn about these techniques being invented, tried, and used successfully.
1: And the I thing mean, about that but, poster that I got from your book that really astonished me was that that's not even the worst case scenario. They've actually, because they don't want to sensationalize or be accused of sensationalizing it, they've actually taken the slave ship with like a medium load. I think, is it four or five hundred slaves when actually on that ship on different voyages are taken up to seven or eight hundred. Um, that's so, right. If, if anything, they're, they're, it's, they're making it so horrific. And if anything, they're still underselling it.
2: That's right. The diagram was based on a particular ship, the Brooks from Liverpool. And it shows even all those bodies packed together like sardines. It shows fewer slaves than we know from these quite meticulous and detailed records that it carries, that it carried on some voyages. I tell that's... you another thing that's been sort of exhilarating in the aftermath of this book is to hear from so many people involved in different kinds of organizing for justice movements today who are inspired by this story and i feel such pleasure in having uh, i got a lovely letter for example from the woman um jody i can't remember her last name who won or co-won the Nobel Prize for starting this worldwide movement against landmines. Oh, right. uh, she said, in effect, uh, thank you for introducing me to some of my counterparts from several centuries ago.
0: I- I'm really interested in how we get this kind of tipping point. For example, you mentioned Benjamin Franklin. He had come to England with two slaves. He brought two slaves to England, a country which didn't theoretically have slavery in it, but they were still, as it were, it was assumed that they sort of maintained their status as slaves. So what is it that happens? And obviously Jefferson famously and controversially had Mm -hmm. slaves. What is it that happens to people and to a society which shifts the balance? Here we have this huge, this is a very modern idea, this gigantic co- corporate business, essentially, multi- um, literally a multinational business, Slavery Inc. And it's delivering, apparently, lots of good things to people, obviously not the people who it, whom it's enslaving, but the people who are profiting from it, who, as we were saying earlier, have every incentive to maintain it. But something happens to tip the balance, and so that somebody like Franklin, who had owned slaves, becomes a supporter of abolition. What is it? What is the process, And this is a huge question, but but what are the stages that that enable that to happen?
2: It is a fascinating question, and I think it's hard to answer definitively, but it's one of those wonderful mysteries about what makes human beings extend their empathy to people that they haven't extended it to before. And if you look at Britain in that period, time period, It happened quite suddenly. Now, there's an interesting index of this, which I talk about a bit in in Bury the Chains. There were no opinion polls in those days. So you couldn't say, you know, X number of people believed in slavery in this year and, you know, Y number of people in another year. But there was one very interesting index of popular sentiment, which was what were the topics of London debating societies. This was a a big spectator sport. You paid
0: sixpence
2: to hear people debate, you know, monarchy versus republicanism, frivolous topics like should women be allowed to wear large hats in the theater, (laughs) you know, whatever. Well, somebody tabulated the topics of London debating societies over the course of many years and Prior, up through 1787, slavery or the slave trade was very seldom a debated topic. Suddenly, February 1788, half the debates on London debating stages are about slavery or the slave trade. Right. Uh, I wish I had been there at that mm-hmm. moment right. to try yeah. to figure out why. I think there were a number of things going on. First, there was a lot of talk in the air about human rights and freedom. This was in the period between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, those few years. And remember, there were many people in Britain, by some estimates, again, you can only estimate this, maybe a third of the population who felt, you know, if those American colonists want to govern themselves, why shouldn't they? Uh, who were sympathetic to what, you know, the American effort to to break break free. Uh, So those ideas were in the air. And uh, I think also you have to give credit to this remarkable movement, which found a way to talk about this that hadn't been discovered before. And that was talking about it through vivid eyewitness testimony. Previously, for decades, there had been debate in Britain about slavery and there'd been people writing pamphlets and articles in newspapers and so on, but it was always done in terms of the Bible. And of course, you can find citations for both sides of any argument somewhere in the Bible. Uh, For the first time, the anti-slavery committee that had gotten formed in May 1787, they began to see the power of eyewitness testimony. Right. You know, Clarkson, the spark plug of this committee, and we should talk about him, got Reverend John Newton to write a pamphlet about his experiences being on a slave ship, what it was like. He sure. got Alexander F- Falconbridge, who had been a slave ship doctor. Many slave ships carried doctors because they wanted their cargo to arrive in healthy condition because sure, sell it's human money. beings for more money. They got Falconbridge to write uh, a short book about his experiences. He got people to testify before the House of Commons, before the House of Lords, before um, committees of them, uh, about what life was like on slave ships and plantations. So suddenly all this eyewitness testimony was floating around. I I call it, this was, you know, really the first great wave of investigative journalism. That's what yeah. investigative journalists do. Go see something horrible that's going on and describe it vividly to make people outraged about Absolutely,
1: it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in a in a much lesser way, it's um, I was sort of reminded of um, when there was a David Attenborough documentary about plastic in the sea and suddenly in the space yes. of weeks, suddenly, you know, you couldn't find a plastic straw in a pub anymore because um, yes, yes. Th- th- there'd been such an outrage. So, so it is it's fascinating things that people are sort of vaguely aware of, like we know that plastic is bad and there is rubbish in the sea um and presumably in the 18th century they kind of get that slavery is not very nice but su- yeah something about putting the evidence in front of people's eyes and suddenly they can't maintain their illusions anymore um, and also
2: you draw a connection to somebody's own life i think yeah. with the plastic in the sea people are reasoning, really hey when i have fish for dinner i'm consuming some of that plastic mm-hmm. And I think in the 18th century, it was, hey, when I put sugar in my tea, this sugar was created by backbreaking labor of enslaved human
0: beings. But it's amazing how quick that's happening, because if you think about what in Britain, I guess, is the American War of Independence. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why it succeeds is because the British government was much more concerned with the slave, with the Caribbean than it was with the Americas, because the Americas didn't generate nearly as much money, the American states, compared to what Jamaica was producing or Barbados. There just wasn't any money in America at that point. Right. right. So the thing they were terrified of, because it's all part of the kind of ongoing seven years, the kind of conflicts that are going on between Britain and France, kind of for really control of what will become a kind of European imperialist world. They're te- much more frightened about losing losing those islands to the french and they are about losing boston and philadelphia and virginia to the americans if you see what i mean so Absolutely. slavery has has even influenced the very existence of america if you see what Absolutely. i mean
2: very true that's very true if the caribbean colonies did not exist i think maybe the british would have fought much harder and perhaps more successfully to keep the united states from breaking away
0: Sure.
1: And and in fact, in um being the Wilbur Smith podcast in uh, Storm Tide, <laughs> um in Storm Wilbur Smith um writes about this and the uh, the the Caribbean colonies at the time of the American Revolution. And of course, there was this fear that actually they would side with the Americans because they're quite closely linked with trade. I think a lot of the timber and uh, other and foodstuffs that they get um come from America. So America is at this stage almost like a a supply depot for um for Caribbean plantations. Uh, and yeah, the great fear is that the revolution will spread to the Caribbean. Uh, and they'll make common cause with the uh, with the 13 colonies. And that would have been absolutely disastrous for Britain.
0: Right. And, and yet to go back to the book. And yet, so that, so that, I think the surrender at Yorktown is what 1781, you would know this. I would hope. But uh, I think I'm right. I think, it's about the, I think I think it's 1781. Around yeah. about that time. So we're talking less than a decade. So less yeah. than a decade, between 1781 and 1788, that switch has been flipped. Yeah. So now now so now we've got the people talking in the coffee houses, talking in the in the in the debating chambers, the Oxford Union and the Cambridge Union, I'm sure, if uh, included. How then does it move from being this talking point to being something where because I think the thing that is not really discussed about abolition, it's not just that the British abolished slavery. It's that by the 19th century, when they were in in possession of the single most powerful fighting force the world had ever seen, i.e. the Royal Navy, uniquely, as far as I know, used that power, that enormous power, to simply take a moral decision, to say, right, we're going to stop this bad thing. I suppose you could say the Second World War was fought on a similar basis. But certainly that's the first time it's happened. How let's follow the the chain through that takes you from people talking to vast fleets blockading an entire section of the African coastline. How does that process work through?
2: The use of the Royal Navy uh, you know, to stop other countries from slave yes. trade. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure you can say that was totally for reasons of morality. And yeah. I think, and remember, other countries, uh, for the most part, had nominally abolished the slave trade by this point. The United States, for example, did in 180, 1807, uh, roughly the same time that, that Britain did. And I think, Part of the motive was that Britain didn't want to see other com- countries profiting from this trade <laughs> okay. in Africa. Now so, that so, they
0: had stopped. So basically, if we if if we can't have it, nobody can have it. It's basically exactly. what you're saying. Exactly. Right. Okay.
1: The, sort of the uh, the using the self interest kind of went both ways because one of the things I um I hadn't appreciated in your book is that the first time they actually managed to get a law passed against the slave trade, it's not against the British slave trade, um, it's against the the foreign slave trade um and that's it's right. a, and and this is their great insight isn't it There's the 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 um society established abolition of slavery's great insight um that asking people to ban the british slave trade parliament's not going to go for that but if you pass a law stopping anyone supporting any slave traders that support the french um okay. then then who it can, can be against that absolutely
0: pass yeah, you can always exactly. pass a law in britain against the french that's like exactly. that's yeah. it's easy peasy yeah.
2: This was this was due to a very brilliant activist, part of the brilliant the, the British movement, James Stephen, who was incidentally the great grandfather of Virginia Woolf, oh, wow. who was a lawyer, um, was uh, in and out of Parliament, uh, and who realized in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars that in fact British ships using other flags, which of course is very easy to do, were conveying slaves to French colonies. So of course, parliament was, was wow. willing to pass a law against that. And in fact, the British slave ship industry was making more money carrying slaves to other people's colonies, particularly the, the French colonies, than they were actually to British colonies at that point. So once they got the law, that law passed, With the momentum from that, they were able to ban British uh, ships from uh, uh, carrying slaves to British colonies as well. Uh, But it took another couple of decades before slavery itself was abolished in the British West Indies. Uh, And the slave trade, you know, the number of ships crossing the Atlantic was in, in such huge numbers in part because... Uh, almost everywhere south of the United States, i.e. the Caribbean, Brazil, other Latin American countries, these were the tropics. Uh, diseases were rife, life was harsher for the slaves, and they died in large numbers. In the American sure. South, uh, fairly early on, slaves began reproducing, the population was growing and for the United States to stop the slave trade in 1807 was no big deal. It was fairly small at that point because right. the American slave population was increasing. But in the Caribbean, the planters had this horrible saying, it is better to buy than to breed, which sure. meant that they felt it was more economical to you know, keep Absolutely. buying shiploads of new slaves from Africa, work yeah. them to death in 10 or 12 years and buy more. Uh, So when the British slave trade came to an end, the abolitionists Mm -hmm. hoped that that meant slavery itself would die out. But it didn't, because, of course, the planters changed their strategy. They improved the slaves diet. They began providing basic medical care, not out of the goodness of their hearts, Mm -hmm. but so that the slave population in, in the British Caribbean would increase on its own it wasn't until the 1830s that they finally abolished slavery itself but even
0: then of course they were comp- they were compensated for the loss of their property I that mean that's that, right. that was a, was a controversial thing to this day that the fact that that families that as they were you know but, okay we're going to take your slaves away from you but this you know in Britain you can't just you can't just appropriate people's property you have yeah. to you have to I mean but what's fascinating about this is here right, being kind of naive and idealistic that plainly as with all politics, it's the it's it's the economy stupid, and it's self interest stupid, and that you, yeah. that really in order in order to create real political movement, as it were, a, a good moral cause is not enough if you if you can't carry the money and the power, and yeah. and self interest with you.
2: Yeah, there were many people who felt that it was a, a sellout and a horrible thing that the. The, the planters who owned these slaves had to be compensated in order for it to pass Parliament, but it was the, the only way they could get it through Parliament.
0: So and even, even the... then, they, they even then they saw they, they saw they saw the, the the distastefulness of that.
2: Sure, there were ardent abolitionists who who felt very badly about that, but uh, it was the only way to get it through Parliament. And in politics, you sometimes have to make really nasty deals, and this was certainly one of the. <laughs> One of the most spectacular ever, I think.
0: Yeah, but 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 equally, equally, at that, by the kind of 1820s, 1830s, you're getting rulers of Africa, I think the King of Dahomey, I can't remember what his name is now, furiously writing to Whitehall and people having to be sent down to placate him because he's basically saying, you've ruined my economy. You've mm-hmm. created yeah. this economy. And, and then the King of Dahomey was in the 1830s, uh, was making like £250,000 a year, which is a huge amount of money and so and so having having sort of created these slave states in 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 Africa which were which became immensely wealthy by that trade, we then kind of kill them off as well. so I mean it has a has a weird knock-on effect within African societies
2: That's true you have a uh you know a a very complicated system of trading that encompasses three continents, and yeah. you make as major a change as saying you know you can no longer trade in human beings, it's going to have repercussions all over the place.
0: Well, you, you've and, cut yeah. out one th- you've you've cut out one side one one corner of the triangle, haven't you? That's right.
1: That's Although right. one of the things that really struck me again in a sort of slightly horrified way in your book was that um, when they banned slave trade in eighteen oh seven, the first thing uh, and um, is Clarkson isn't it, who carries around this. Um, little sample box of all the great kind of African products that he thinks we can trade with Africa instead of slaves and making the argument right. that we'll, we'll, we'll change, change the terms of trade. Um, and of course this gets realized in the most horrible way because the local African leaders uh, instantly said, right, we can't sell the slaves anymore to to the slave to the British slave traders. So we'll keep our own slaves and have them start producing whatever nuts or fabric or other commodities we can now sell to the British. Um, And so in a sense, the slavery just gets moved slightly further, you know, into a different part of the value chain, which which was, again, was sort of horrifying.
2: That's true. That's true. Yeah.
1: Coming back to uh, what you were saying earlier about kind of politics having to cut deals. Again, one of the things I really enjoyed in your book was the way it weaves in the the, the the bigger history of the period and the way that the the efforts of this this committee of these, these extraordinary individuals um you know sometimes the tide is running with them and sometimes it's really running against them so um you know there is this window after the american revolution when liberty is in the air um and then the French Revolution happens and gets kind of gives liberty a bad name um, and makes economic self sacrifice unthinkable because they're desperately trying to pay for this war and I think it, you know a, a, a bleak decade I think is the, the chapter in your book um, where basically after the first inadequate bill against the slave trade nothing happens. Um, and and you know, even things like the the debate gets bumped because King George the has gone mad, so um, you know politics kind of grinds to a halt. It's they're they're constantly um, at the mercy of these kind of bigger shifting events, um, and and eventually it's it is the. It, but one of the things that what people who aren't necessarily following the script, um, and you sort of mentioned in your book, are. We're mainly looking at kind of the white, um, not entirely white, because obviously you've got people like Equiano, but mainly white British um, men, mainly, uh, trying to abolish the slave trade in the UK. But of course, in the Caribbean, there are uh, slaves who are taking matters into their own hands, and they're not going to wait for someone to pass a law. They're actually rising up and and fighting rebellions. And of course, some of them get put down pretty violently. But of course, there's Toussaint's Rebellion um, in Saint-Domingue um which is spectacularly successful
2: that's right there were rebellions all over the the, the caribbean and in british territory the big ones were in what's now guiana uh in barbados uh and especially in jamaica you know jamaica yeah. was sort of the crown jewel of british possessions in caribbean enormously rich in sugar and in 1831-32 there was a huge rebellion there that lasted for about five or six weeks. It it took that long for the British army to put it down. And uh, you had after that people coming back to Britain, you know, army officers, plantation officials saying, testifying before parliament, this is, this may happen again and we may not be able to contain it next time. Hmm. And I think that was a powerful incentive for parliament to finally, uh, free the slaves, which it voted on in 1833, and it took effect in 1838.
1: And we, of course we were, they'd, the, so a lot of these officers had seen the brutality of slavery firsthand, and then came back and were the sorts of people who get elected to Parliament. Um, so, can, so you, in those later debates, you actually have people in Parliament who have not just heard witnesses, but actually seen it firsthand.
2: That's right, and, and of course, you also had people who came from families that owned plantations and didn't want anything changed. Yeah, so you had both both types.
0: We were we were talking recently. We had a couple of um, podcasts. Um, there's a book, one of Wilder Smith's book called "The Falcon Flies," and one of the characters in it um, is a is a is a young woman called Robin Ballatine, who is a great anti-slaver, and is is. And very much in a in an evangelical sense. And and then she there's a there's a there's a um uh, she falls in love with a captain called Clinton Codrington. And I don't know if it's by accident or not, but Codrington was a plantation and his name in I think Jamaica. But anyway, she embodies something which then happens, which has a bizarrely imperial imperialist effect, which is that that sense of the moral duty to go out into Africa and, and for the good of the Africans to, to bring the word of God and civilization and Christianity and, fr- and and our notion of freedom. But of course, in that sense, you then had to start taking the land, which had not happened before. Prior to that, it's just been, it's a business transaction. We come into this entrepot you know the the barracoons are all there, the slaves there. We pick them up, we go away. That's it. This business. But but weirdly, with the abolition of slavery, and the creation of a sort of, of 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 a broad evangelical movement, what you do is you end slavery, but you create what you were talking about, which was the, which was the dash for Africa. But it arises out of a, to a considerable extent out of a, a moral liberal impulse. Does that mean? Is that right?
2: That's true. I mean, that's a whole different and fascinating subject of what were the what were the forces that impelled the British and the French and the Portuguese and other people, the Germans, sure. into Africa, and many of them like to think they were doing it to bring civilization, Christianity, yeah. and so forth to the Africans, um, uh, and uh, and then it's also fascinating to see people who. Thought that's what they were doing. And then they got there and realized what it was really about. You know, I I wrote a book, King Leopold's Ghost, about the Belgian colonization of the Congo. And there were many British missionaries there, as well as American missionaries, Swedish missionaries. Some of whom got there, you know, they went to Africa to preach the gospel and spread Christianity. They got there and they realized they were in the middle of a horror show, right. slave labor system, and they became very important eyewitnesses. And the same thing was true for some British missionaries in the Caribbean, where they went there very idealistically. And then they found the plantation owners didn't want them preaching to the slaves. because No, quite. Uh, They might get ideas from the Bible. And when they were able to preach to the slaves, the slaves always wanted to hear the story of Moses leading the people to the promised (laughs) land. So missionaries (laughs) became important figures in the later stages of the anti-slavery.
1: It's interesting that you talked about um, the West Indian planters not wanting their slaves to be instructed in in religion. Because of course, again, um, one of the points you make In the book is that uh the owner in fact of the codrington plantation that uh, diana mentioned um is in fact the church of england so the irony there is immense
2: that's right for more than a century and the church of england it was specifically its missionary arm that owned the society i think it was called the society for propagation of the gospel in foreign Mm. parts owned this large slave plantation Uh, on the island of Barbados, and they owned it, and they they didn't free the slaves until the very last minute in the 1830s. You know, there were professors of divinity at Oxford and Cambridge who were on the board of the society, and nobody thought there was anything strange or unusual about the church owning a slave plantation. That is just how deeply slavery was embedded in the way that everybody thought.
1: It's interesting that the uh, the, does Diana mentioned the uh, the character in The Falcon Flies who is this? I mean, whiter than white. Literally, he has he has white hair. Yes, yes, white hair. Yeah, and is this fervently evangelical, devout, anti-slavery crusader? Um, is called Clinton Codrington. And I have to believe that Wilbur Smith was well-read enough oh. to probably appreciate um, the the nuance yeah, of naming I mean. his character after uh, a, sl- a plantation that had been owned by the Church of England, uh, which is a, a, a nuance I, I'd not appreciated um, until until I read your book. I mean, your book, is a f- the, the through line of the book, is about how this small group of people raise awareness um, of the evils of slavery and, and affect societal change. And it seems to me that in the last 20 years or 15 years, maybe even less, we've gone through a similar process again. I was really struck. I think the novel, the the book is um, published in 2005. Is that about right?
2: Uh, Yes, it was 2005. Yeah.
1: And in it, you you talk about a a statue of Edward Colston in Bristol um, and uh, a a noted uh, slave trader um, yeah. and, uh, uh, yeah, and and um, financier. Um, and you, you say that it wasn't until 1998 that someone scrawled on its base the name of one of the professions in which he had made his fortune, slave trader. Uh, and in 2005, that's a pretty niche fact to have uh, got into your book. Yeah. Now, of course, in 2019, suddenly, or 2020, um, it becomes the um, most famous statue in the UK when it's dragged off yeah. its plinth and tipped in the harbour. Um, which I think is symbolic of a much wider societal awakening almost to to the evils of slavery and its place in our past. So I don't know how tuned in you are to the the, the debates in the UK because obviously in America, slavery has been a very, very live issue for uh, decades. Um, But... Do you see that? Have you, have you, have you seen the, the growth and the awareness of, of Britain's slave past and the part it played in our national growth?
2: Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, I saw it after my book came out. It came out in 2005, both in in Britain and the US. And then in 2007, and you, you all may remember this. It was the 200th anniversary of British abolition of the slave trade, all right and It was celebrated in a way that I certainly never anticipated, where Parliament appropriated, I believe, 20 million pounds for museums all over the country to do exhibits on this. The Queen went to a memorial service at Westminster Abbey. Tony Blair, who was prime minister, then apologized for slavery. And I actually spent a couple of weeks in Britain and, you know, I got so many speaking invitations, I was able to cobble them together into a very nice... (laughs) tour and saw some of the museums and the exhibits and uh, spoke to uh, uh, an audience of, you know, Caribbean immigrants in London and various other places. So that that was certainly, and I think since then, the awareness of all this has only grown uh, sure. in Britain and in the United States. And Colson's statue into Bristol Harbor is one instance of sure. that. I think people focus on the statues because you can tear down a statue you can cart it away uh, but it takes so much more work to heal the effect of these centuries of inequality that are reflected in just innumerable ways in both our
0: societies yes yes exactly yeah yeah that's
1: fascinating sure So um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us to talk about um, the the transatlantic slave trade and the moves to abolish it. Um, For listeners um, who are Wilbur Smith fans will uh, maybe know that in terms of Wilbur's work, uh, A Falcon Flies uh, and its prequel, uh, Call of the Raven, uh, both deal uh, very directly um, and pretty graphically uh, with the transatlantic slave trade in a slightly later period. Also, Stormtide, um, which I co-wrote with Wilbur, um, deals with Caribbean slavery and the sugar plantations in the period we've been talking about in during the, uh, the American Revolution. Um, and I'm sure there'll be more to come in that vein. Uh, but of course, the other final connection is that we, you said, Adam, that the, the final abolition um, of slavery rather than the slave trade comes um, in the 1830s. Uh, and I think 1838 is the year that that right. takes place. Right. Uh, th- the other thing, of course, that happens in 1838 is the uh, Great Trek. Um, and I think it's interesting, oh, interesting, one little footnote to this, uh, and the sort of the law of unintended consequences. One of the reasons that the Boer farmers um, finally get fed up of living in the British controlled Cape Colony and decide to pack up their ox wagons and go across um, the Orange River to... And the Vaal to, to to found their own um, states is because um, the the British have taken their slaves away, um, and they they're, they're not happy about that, and they they want to go somewhere where they can uh, treat the blacks the way they want to do, rather than having the British government tell them how to do it. And in a sense, that is what kickstarts modern South African history, um, which is Wilbur's theme um, above all others. So I think it's interesting that as well as the um, the history that we've discussed today, that's dealt with in his books. Um, it is also this process is the spark by which um, South Africa, in effect, becomes the country we
0: know it is today.
2: That's right. That's a fascinating connection.
0: I guess it just well, comes back to the point that, that slavery just was this cause and effect of so many other things. It's just astonishing.
2: That's right. True. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: yeah. So thanks so much, Adam, for joining us.
2: It was a pleasure, and uh, good luck to you all. And It sounds like I should go out and read some Wilbur Smith.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Again, thank you so, so much. It really was a great pleasure.
2: Very, very welcome. Okay, take care.
0: And next week,
1: we're being allowed out of our studio to go to one of the highlights of our year, the 2023 Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize Awards Ceremony at the Royal Geographical Society in London will be crashing the party talking to the winners talking to the judges and rating the canapes so do join us then for what should be a very special episode of that wilbur smith show in the meantime it's goodbye from me tom harper
0: and it's goodbye from me diana thomas That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer Niso Smith.